Welcome to Incognito, the podcast, where I converse with interesting guests from a variety of fields and disciplines about how they foster inclusive workplaces and communities. Today's guest, David O'Donnell, has worked as a design strategist for a wide variety of corporations over a 25-year period. It is with that background, he brought a wealth of experience and knowledge to our conversation, translating into tangible results. He offers a practical idea for people to be heard and seen, while suggesting that fewer meetings might result in better outcomes. And he confirms there has been a shift in the way corporations are becoming more inviting of their employees' personal lives and stories. Welcome to Incognito, the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Fosberg, and with me today is David O'Donnell. David is a design thinker who has spent his career helping companies and institutions leverage deep empathy for the people they serve to create thoughtful, effective solutions to their most important challenges. He has paired his deep expertise in applied research with a master's degree and work experience in public policy in order to think about or think at both the systemic and human levels. His career in design and management consulting has taught him the importance of putting people first, cutting to clarify, and the best ways to manage multi-partner collaborations to bring new ideas to the world. His career in public service, social innovation, and climate activism have taught him that solving the world's most significant challenges is not only possible, but the source of a deep and fulfilling personal purpose. David lives in Chicago with his partner, daughter, and dogs. He is a practicing Buddhist, theater artist, and dance movement hobbyist. During the warm months of the year, he is committed to spending as much time as possible in the wild woods talking to trees. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Michael. It's good to see you. It's good to be with you. Yeah, I, uh, I, you know, I have to, I have to let listeners know that you, you actually provided me with two bios, <laughs> which I, which, which is really great because, and I, you know, I, as you are familiar, having listened to a few of the podcasts, I, you know, the first thing we talk about is how we identify, how we see ourselves, how other people see ourselves, and I, and you gave me a choice of these two bios and said, you know, whatever you want, you know, you could edit whatever. And I chose the second one, um, the second one on the page, the second one, simply because it was more personal. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to give more of a sense of you as I know you. Uh, And the first one, certainly, well, both of them, certainly impressive, but the certain, the first one um, that I did not read, certainly more of your professional accomplishments and things of that sort. And I just find this so fascinating, as you well know, um, because the first impression that people get of us comes from things that people say about us or how we appear to people. And, and so I guess, you know, is there, is there more <laughs> to be said about who you are and how you see yourself? Mm, certainly. I mean, I think, you know, not every situation, especially professional ones or, you know, do you lead with talking with trees? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, um, you know, I think 
sometimes depending on on the context and the cues that I'm getting from whatever the request for proposal or the uh, what everybody else is doing. That bio I actually created when I joined the Sonder Collective, which was uh -huh. uh, an international cooperative of designers based mostly in Europe and Africa, um, working mostly on public health issues. So I was sort of following the lead of the other members of the cooperative who talked about their professional accomplishments, but were also, you know, more personal. So, yeah. uh, so I think that's an important part, right? Is like just reading the room essentially <laughs> and, and de determining what, what you're sharing and what you're not. Although I will say, I think something that's super fascinating in work, having worked in not really corporate settings, like consulting to corporate settings. And I've worked in, you know, some big companies for brief periods, but I, I do, I find it very heartening the degree to which personal is being invited into more professional settings and the way that you'll, I don't know, start a meeting with a moment of silence or like some stretching, like getting embodied or acknowledging that you're feeling anxious, you know, like all these things are... I mean, obviously it depends on where you're working and yeah. there are many different types of cultures, but work cultures. Um, but I do find that kind of interesting that there's, that the personal is, is more acknowledged in professional settings these days. Do you think that has something to do with the movement? And part of this has come through the DE&I space, but also part of it is, um, Oh, uh, I guess a more open co uh, corporate culture in that people are are suggesting, you know, bring your full self to work, bring your authentic self to work. Are you yeah. Yeah. I think that's the call. I think, you know, I think that depends. It depends where you're working, whether or not that is an actual request and they really want you to bring your full self to work right. or if they're just sort of saying that. And then in some places that is really true. Like they really do want you to bring your full self to work. And um, of course, I think everybody has to decide whether or not to do that. You know, I don't, I think even if the invitation is made, it it may not feel safe for some people to bring their full selves or it may feel safe in one instance or bring a facet of themselves, but not another facet or something like that. So I think it's always kind of a negotiation. Yeah. Yeah. I often refer to uh, companies in the form of um, talking the talk or um, walking the talk. So in yes. other words, companies um, will say they want you to bring your full self to work, but they're just saying it. They're not actually living it or in, they're encouraging it, but they're not actually embodying it, I guess I would say. And embodying it is actually walking that talk. And so, yes, as you said, um, um, some may feel more inhibited in bringing that full self to work. Um, whereas in other situations, um, I guess, you know, it's important to be able to read the room, as you mentioned as well. Uh -huh. Yeah, and I think I think it the the place that that really plays out is in moments of um, like change and crisis, mm -hmm. like how 
whether or not companies are actually walking the talk. You know, I think I know a lot of people who live in the Bay Area right now who've been laid off by a number of tech companies. Yes. And one of which I worked for who who both as I was part of, I was an employee and then I was consulting to them for quite some time. And they had this very actually problematic kind of appropriated term for family culture, a Hawaiian term, ohana, which was kind of weird that it was this appropriated indigenous term, ohana meaning family, as I understand it. So this idea that there's a sort of family value, like a, a that the, the company is a family and we treat each other like family. And then when, you know, there's all kinds of ways in which that wasn't actually true. <laughs> but then when, you know, they felt they needed to essentially take care of their shareholders and their stock price, no they really didn't treat people family, or at least not the kind of family I'd want to be part of. Um, and, and so I think in that moment, right, like when it comes down to it, like, how do you treat people when, you know, you have to let people go or how do you treat people when the economy is tanking or how, you know, that I think is a really interesting question where the rubber kind of meets the road. Right. And you've worked in a number of different um, places, as you've mentioned, yeah. whether as an employee or as a consultant. Do you think that these places, and I'm, I'm I'm assuming as you sort of point out, each one has a little bit of a different take or acceptance on walking the talk. Um, yeah. Do you think that those places that, again, using that terminology, walking the talk, have a greater sense of inclusion? that people feel more included, more um, they feel that they belong. There's belonging is a, is a new buzzword that people are using these days. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, I think the, so I worked at a company called Gravity Tank and we were a, a design studio. So we were advising companies on new product designs and service designs. Um, and I, most of my clients there were um, philanthropies. So I was working on public health related and education related projects and Gravity Tank, you know, I started when there were about 20 and we grew to about 140 people. And that company was probably the greatest place I've ever worked in terms of the quality, just the talent and the the friendliness and the kindness and the the rigor kind of paired with a certain amount of kind of gentleness i mean we worked crazy hours and it was it was a kind of a hardcore place in some ways too but i think the thing that was really important about gravity tank is that the values of the company really were in the work like in our day-to-day -day work, like how we collaborated, the fact that we were focused truly on multidisciplinary collaboration, that we were focused truly on like effective critique um, so that people could say hard things about a project, but, you know, people wouldn't take it personally, not always, you know, or people could 
have a strong opinion, but hold it loosely, which was one of our, our values that we had. But it was embedded in the work as opposed to it being like an HR term that was in the employee handbook uh-huh. um, that you read your first week and maybe watched a presentation about. And you're like, these are our company values. Yeah. And I've worked at other places where you read those values and then you got into the job and you were like, oh, actually, there are other values at play here, like competition and aggression and, you know, wow. sales at all cost or whatever, you know. Um, so I think that's always a question, like, how do you not just state those things, but like embed them in the actual work you do day to day? Yeah, uh, a dilemma to be sure for various companies with various levels of commitment to inclusivity and yes, authenticity. I, and I wanna... let me say one, can I say one thing about that? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm currently doing a bunch of strategic consulting for environmental nonprofits. So yeah. these are organizations that are working on what we call the energy transition. Yeah. And they're, so they're working on policy and programs to increase electrification of the transportation sector or the built environment um, or other kinds of climate change related policies. And they're all focused on um, doing their work in a way that centers equity. Mm. And, but I think what's interesting about that is they are kind of stating that value. Like we want to be equity centered. We want, you know, our goals, our long-term goals involve equity and, you know, sort of reparative work in the, in the communities. And we want to be community centered. They're saying all of these things. They actually, I think, hold those values, these, these nonprofits I work with, mm -hmm. but they don't know always exactly how to do the work that they're aspiring to do. So I think that's another category, the yeah. category of like, no, these really are our core values, but it, it it requires a change in how we do our work. And and we're not sure exactly how to go about doing that yet. So yeah. they're kind of grappling with that question. Yeah. How, how to apply those. Yeah. 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 Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, so I I want to I want to jump back for a second because I want sure. I want to I want to jump back and sort of uh, kind of pick this up uh, in the future here, um, but okay. I want to I want to ask a little go back to the personal to to you David O'Donnell the personal sure. and and some of that you shared again I shared of, of your bio and and you being the tree hugger that you are the tree talker <laughs> that you are and 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 the free spirit that I sort of see you as again that's a I'm seeing you as that, that may not be as you see yourself, but I guess the question that I have is so knowing some of this, have you ever felt that walking into a room that your identity um, might've been an obstacle? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, especially as like an older white gray haired man, uh who reads you know as cis and you know i mean i consider myself queer but i don't really read as queer and being in activist circles 
especially BIPOC-led activist uh, environments, circles, yeah. movements, actions. I do direct action, nonviolent direct action work sometimes, and certainly in those places. And yeah, I mean, yeah, a lot of stories about that. I mean, uh, that's a real challenge that I'm facing professionally right now, like, and and in my activism, what role, how do I show up in those spaces in a way that, you know, allows me to offer what I can offer to those spaces, but also not take up too much space. Right. Oh, I mean, that goes from like the, the minimum, like minor challenges, like, like I was... I was out, I live right next to a park in Chicago and there was a group of young, well, they weren't all young, but they were they mostly young. To my mind, they read as like anarchists. Okay. They were wearing like that. One of them had the IWW industrial workers of the world t-shirt on. And I don't know, they look kind of punk rock and anarchist. And I could tell they were having some kind of, I was like, reading and sort of hanging out nearby them and yeah. they were sitting in a circle and you could tell they were having like a like a group session and i had been feeling a little bit that my activism was super national kind of you know i was doing these bigger things and i wanted to get get i wanted to get engaged with a group in my neighborhood yeah so i sort of waited around until the group broke up and then i went over and talked to them and i I can't remember exactly what my point of end. I, I I said something like like what are you guys up to or whatever, and I was trying to like start a conversation to understand who they were, and it dawned on me as I was talking to them they thought I was a cop. <laughs> you know, they were like these guys totally think I'm a cop, like surveilling them, and you know the conversation didn't go anywhere and whatever. I met one of the guys later at this place called the PO Box Collective and whatever we're starting to have a relationship but at that moment it was just like yeah talk to the hand cop we're not telling you who we are well isn't that interesting because you because <laughs> this is the first impression that a person has like you, sure. you can't change the way that you look to them and the, the way that you present right. yourself and yet at the same time you want to engage you want to um uh, utilize and and um, be active with your activism and uh, yep. and be an ally, shall we say? And yep. yet, um, first impression, you're a cop and you could be threatening to them, and that's where we're not really spending a little bit of time to get to know one another. So, and yeah. how, how do we go about doing that in such an awkward situation? Yeah, I and I think the you know the way. The only answer to that, and I, as I said, I don't feel like I have a lot of answers. I'm sort of grappling with it. But I think the only answer I have is like time, sustained time. Mm. Like you can't take being rejected or, you know, read, you know, having the cover of your book read and, you know, identified and then dismissed or whatever, you can't take that too personally or take it to mean that you shouldn't keep trying. You shouldn't right. keep, you have to develop relationships. Right. So I keep, you know, the PO box collective is a, is a good example. You know, I'm just over there, like giving, helping with the food, not bombs, food distribution, and, and then went to a native plants sales swap thing and whatever. So I'm just like, 
have to get in there and be and show myself as a person who is a not a cop and be you know like actually interested in the issues they're talking about and you know it's you want to be careful to not like do too much virtue sig signaling like oh i was involved in the line three like just like dropping that you were involved in the line three fight in the first two minutes of a conversation or whatever you know which was a pipeline fight that I was involved in and did direct action. And, but, you know, so um, anyway, so I think that's a question, like another example, this one is, is more important, you know, or more substantive. I was, I was working for a large social service nonprofit in Chicago and they had developed this very, very impactful program for intervening in violence on the south and west sides of Chicago with young, mostly black men. Yeah. And so that program was running and they were doing a good job and they were interested in extending it to black women, young black women. Yeah. So they pulled black women from across the organization. It's a very big nonprofit to have some initial brainstorms about how they might do that. And I was facilitating that conversation uh -huh. and, <laughs> and it was really unfortunate actually, because I really shouldn't have been. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm good at facilitating. Like that's one of my prime services that I bring to my clients. Yeah. And it was sort of at the tail end of my engagement with this client. So yeah. We had two meetings within the very first meeting. I was like, what am I doing? Like, why am I running a meeting full of black women talking about black women's lived experience? You know, like this is insane, but you know, whatever my client asked me to do it. So I kept doing it, but we only had two meetings, uh, right? So I don't actually know what happened with that idea or that project I heard that it's moving forward in some way, but I was sort of taken off the work and there's no way, like I could imagine there might've been a situation where over time I could have developed relationships and, and trust and played a role there that made more sense. Um, yeah. But you really can't do that in a single meeting or two right. meetings, you know, it's right. just not possible. It takes time. Right. So. Right. Well, so, so then let me ask you, in the in in that situation in in the work that you do that you find yourself in um these various um not-for-profits um these other clients that are enlisting you to lead projects how do you go about creating an environment that is conducive to collaboration yeah yeah it's a great question so i work in design um and design you know you might know the term, your listeners might know the term design thinking and, you know, sort of iconic firms like IDEO and whatever, who've been doing this kind of design work for years. And we have a point of view that fundamentally core to the work of design is this idea of getting tangible and that the, that collaboration works best when an idea is not just an idea that you're talking about, but an idea that you're making. So you're making to learn and you're learning to make. And, and that can take all kinds of different forms. The classic, like 
you know, if you search design thinking on Google right now, you'll, the images that show up will all be sticky notes. So like designers always show up and put a bunch of sticky notes on the walls, you know, but actually sticky notes are an incredibly useful tool for doing exactly what you're asking. Because the thing about a sticky note, so you're in a room, you're asking people for ideas or, or how are we going to organize this project or how are we going to solve this problem? Everybody has Sharpies. Everybody has sticky notes. Everybody writes those down. Michael holds up his idea and, and, you know, quickly describes it. And then I, you know, do a kind of yes and, and hold up my sticky Mm. note and do that. And then the facilitator takes those sticky notes and other sticky notes and puts them up on a wall. Mm. And then Michael feels like he's been heard. Mm. And David feels like he's been heard because it's up on a wall. His idea is up on a wall and they're starting to be, or, and then you're like, oh my God, we've done so much work. You know, after you've had an hour long conversation or whatever, there's sticky notes all over the wall. And then you can invite people up and say, let's all organize, you know, these different ideas into groupings that make sense along these categories. And then everybody is involved because they're taking one sticky note and moving it over here and having a debate about, is this this category or that category? Should this sticky note go here or should it go there? So it's tangible, right? It's like, Uh, and that really, really has an effect. Or like I do an exercise called sacred cows um, where I print an outline of a cow, uh like a big cow, and I put it up on the wall. And at the very beginning of the conversation, I just say, what are the things that this, what are the norms in this organization or the accepted truths in this organization that we think we can't change as we go about solving this problem? Okay. People start saying like, well, we're never going to, whatever, get more budget or we're never going to da 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 A, B, C, D, D. And you just, you cover the the cow <laughs> with these like sticky notes. And then you say, interesting, like, A, we have a lot of things we think we can't change. (laughs) Is B, is that actually true? Um, But, you know, C, and then like, let's start talking about it in detail. Like, is this one really true? Blah, blah, blah. But the point is, it's tangible. Yes. This moment where everybody sees this cow and how many things they've already said no to. Yeah, we can't change before we've even started this workshop where purportedly we're trying to change things. <laughs> and it creates this session. It just sort of relaxes everybody and like, actually, we probably could change this one, you know. Yeah. But I think, of, you know, the thing that makes that happen is the the wall and the cow covered in sticky notes. If you were just talking about them. Yes. It wouldn't, help you know and so i think you know i was listening to uh mariam uh kaba who wrote um no more police and she's an abolitionist um formerly chicago activist and she just wrote a book called uh it literally just came out i don't have it yet it's called this let this radicalize you Mm. um and um she wrote it with Kelly Hayes, who's another activist, indigenous activist in Chicago. And um, she was, so she was being interviewed on Kelly's podcast and 
Miriam said she was talking about like self-critique on the left and in movement discussions and how we have trouble like getting ideas going mm-hmm. because we're so critical of them yeah before they've you know like a seed of an idea before it's grown we're like cutting it down and she was like make something just do it go try something don't just talk about how everything about the system or the movement or some combination of the system and the movement is wrong do something and i think there's a lot to be said for that like just get something going. And then once it's made, people can join and they can critique it. And if you are open to critique, yes, then, you know, people can join you in that effort. Now, if you make something and you're like shut down and can't listen to critique or, or take new ideas or go pivot when you need to pivot, then you have a problem. If you're just making stuff and charging ahead without engaging others. Um, But I do think tangibility and making is really important. One of the things we talk about with, I talk about with my clients is how do we move from a culture of what we call imp to a culture of prototyping and making and creativity. Mm. And imp is a standard approach to coming up with new ideas at most organization. And it's, it's E-E-E-M-P, and it stands for email, 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 meeting, PowerPoint. <laughs> As like a standard way to get things done. And it's like, that is not actually, get in a room, draw, sketch, stand yeah. up, get all the different various viewpoints together and in a workshop right. where you're you're not on your phones for a good four hours at least and you're like really working and you can get so much more done and build so much more trust yeah. than if everybody's just sitting behind their computer writing emails at each other. Right. Right. Well, I mean, you, you, you started this off by talking about making to learn and learning yeah. to make. And that um, dovetails with what you mentioned of the two writers in the radicalized book. Yeah. Uh, and also I love this idea of the sticky notes because it's, as you said, it's it's tangible. So it's not just that people are being heard, they're being seen because we can oh, yeah. see what they've said on yeah. a you note know, right in front of us. So yeah. they're being heard and seen right there. Yeah. So I love that idea. Um, so I know this is an impossible question. Um, and and maybe you've already sort of um, laid out some of the things that you would answer this with. But if you could recommend to our listeners um one thing that could act as a catalyst for a more inclusive society or or workplace what would that be i mean it could be a lesson a tool a step a rule what what one thing would you suggest could be the catalyst can i answer it for like organizations and then for society as a whole absolutely absolutely that'd be great well yeah, let me, I'll answer it because I, I thought about this briefly. Uh, for society as a whole, I think the thing we need that would make the society more inclusive would be a guaranteed basic income. Ah, I think if we had a guaranteed basic income, it obviously would have so much impact on uh, the working poor 
on marginalized community. I think it would undermine systemic racism in so many ways. I think it would it would level not level the playing field but it would it would give people who really need it and populations and you know a real step up in being able to care for themselves to choose the jobs they actually want which would then in turn make employers have to actually pay living wages because there would be more competition and and workers would be more you know, selective in terms of where they're working. So I think that would just raise the boat for working class people across the country. So I think for all kinds of ways, like it would, it would make the the economy much more inclusive. But the other thing that I think it would do is it would just give people the license to do what they want (laughs) to like bring they're full. So you're stuck in a job that you don't really want to be doing, but really what you're interested in is, you know, making, you know, like, I don't know, Punjabi house music. Yeah. And, and now because you have this guaranteed basic income, you feel like, you know, you might be able to, you know, have a, a small part-time job instead of a full-time job and do your work doing Punjabi house music or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. I just think it would like allow people to be their full selves or try things. And it would just create so much diversity mm. in our economy and our culture in our society at large. I think it would just be a huge, huge deal. Yeah. Hugely catalytic. I liked your question. I took seriously the idea of catalyst, like, cause it would not just have direct impact. It would have all kinds of ancillary and adjacent. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of organizations, I think you got to have less meetings. (laughs) I do. I think, I think you should just say like, cause, cause, um, the way it works for most organizations is that I'm running meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting for probably six hours of my day. I am showing up to those meetings as a result, harried, unprepared. And then I'm like doing all my creative or even not creative administrative work in the margins of that. So I have to work starting at 7.30 a.m., and after 5 p.m. So have fewer, better meetings. <laughs> I mean, so, this, is, this is kind of antithetical to the idea of bringing people together because obviously yeah. meetings are bringing people together, but oh. you're suggesting that less meetings would actually bring people uh, yes. more together, more included, more collaborating. Yeah. And so you need, so yeah. So the qualifier that I added actually is fewer, better meetings. So you have to have fewer meetings, like you block off, like, all right, we just decide that we have no meeting Wednesdays or something, or we, we have no meetings until 11 AM, you know, four days a week or, you know, whatever it is, you, you set some kind of cultural standard and this doesn't work for every kind of organization, obviously, but ones that have some kind of element of knowledge work in them, I think, but maybe, I don't know. Anyway, so, so you do that first and then you set standards for those meetings, right? Like we show up with an agenda. Mm. 
we invite the right people, which means both the people who need to be there and the people who don't need to be there do not get invited. We don't just like daisy chain invite everybody because we think we should. You know, I had a client the other day who told me we were talking about this very topic and how to change the culture at this nonprofit. And she was like, I was invited to a meeting that had an ambiguous title. And when I arrived to this hour long meeting with 20 people in it, it turned out I was supposed to be presenting. She didn't know that she was supposed to be presenting. She didn't know what the meeting was about. She was not prepared. <laughs> yeah, she just like, so like, is that a productive use of everybody's time? The 20 people in that meeting? No. So anyway, fewer better meetings. Fewer better meetings. I love that. That is a great place. That that's a that, that's the button for our conversation. I really think this <laughs> this has been terrific. I um I want to sort of wrap things up by asking you uh, an inspirational question, if I might. And that mm -hmm. would be, can you recommend a book, a movie, a play, a television show, something, whatever that has inspired you, and tell us why? Yeah, I mean, I read a lot, so. This was actually, you sent this question to me and I was like, just one, can I do two? Yeah, no, absolutely. You can do two. I'm not going to hold you to. All right. So I'm reading the dawn of everything by um, David Graeber and uh, David Wengro, okay. who are anthropologists and paleontologists. Okay. Respectively. It's an amazing book about it. Essentially, I won't go into it in great detail, but I highly recommend it. And the book is essentially saying that we have this false understanding of indigenous societies as being apolitical and not grappling themselves with questions of how to organize themselves politically and socially. And you have this idea that like, well, you know, prior to civilization beginning, you know, you just were small roaming bands of, you know, Edenic people who lived in harmony with nature or were, you know, life was what's the term short, brutal and, sh you know, um, whatever that, or we were just like violent bands yeah, of like, sure. you know, ruling by whoever was strongest. No, so and, he, and they just go through the data through years and years, whether it be Algonquin philosophers who were debating French colonialists and had an impact on French thought that eventually led to the French revolution wow. to central south american tribes that organized themselves one way during the hunting season and a different way during the uh, more winter season the growing season to so it's just this really interesting idea about like all these different ways that humans could be organized wow uh, through time so that's one and then the yeah. other one is an immense world by ed young which is about how animals understand and perceive their world so uh, how dogs smell how bats use ecolocation and it it essentially decenters humans and the way that we perceive the world and says like there's all kinds of other ways to perceive the world none being more or less better all of them 
fitting into the particular ecological niche that they were developed in. Yeah. And yeah, I think it's a really, in, to your question and your podcast question about inclusivity, and I think it's a really, it really helps you get inside the minds or the experiences of animals different from yourself. And I think, you know, one of my identities is as is a vegan. And I think, Michael, we are going to look back in, I don't know, 50 years on the fact that we eat humans and the way we eat, no, we don't eat humans. We eat animals. <laughs> that we humans eat animals and the way that we treat animals nice. as just an absolute travesty, like like an incomprehensible way of, of treating other living beings. Yeah. And um, and I think this book is a really great book to help you sort of open your mind to what's happening with with other species. Indeed, indeed. And it's just so fascinating to think about it from another perspective, because we I mean, we just we're in our bubbles, uh, bubbles for a number of different kinds of bubbles, but our bubbles as human beings and not thinking outside of that. And this is this just sounds fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And just in the same way that we take our we take that difference as an excuse for oppression and abuse wow. just like um we do in racist forms of oppression you know well i look you look different than me so you know or you your culture is organized differently than my culture so obviously you should be enslaved you know or whatever like Anyway, so I think that's a that's a bigger topic, but um, <laughs> really important to sort of, you know, find ways to to see the world from a different perspective as much as we can. Absolutely. David, thank you so much for this conversation. It's really been wonderful. Yeah, super fun. Yeah. Nice talking to you. I love the podcast and I'm happy to have been asked. Thank you so much. Thanks again for listening to Incognito, the podcast, season four. If you're a new listener, welcome. I hope you found something here that you can use in your work life or your community. And if you are returning, I'm so happy to continue to have your support. I personally listen to a good number of podcasts and realize how difficult it can be to sustain listenership over time. So for those of you who can call yourselves longtime listeners, I really appreciate that you still find value and interest in what is being said here. As always, we welcome your suggestions and encourage you to rate and comment in your podcast app. Ratings and comments help people find us and allows us to spread the word about this work. Also, you can find us on Instagram at IncognitoThePlay. Find us there, follow us, hit us up with a question or a comment. We have a limited social media presence, so I'm urging you to take an additional step to tell someone you know about this work. I'll be back again next week with yet another conversation that delves deeply into identity authenticity, and ways in which we can create inclusive communities and workspaces.